Well, hello there. Um, <clears throat> here is my uh, reading for this week. Uh, as uh, you may know, I, I do these uh, readings of things that interest or intrigue me every so often. I like to declaim uh, sometimes, and this is a good outlet for it. Uh, but before I start, I should let you know that I shall be away next week. Uh, let me just check my diary, flick through my diary. Uh, yeah, this is the 14th, or it will be when this is published. So yes, I'll be away on the 21st, um, and then back on the 28th, uh, because I am going to New York City for a, for a holiday that week. Um, so I'll be away for, for that uh, time. Uh, today I'm going to read, I've been perusing again, John Keane's classic, still the classic, uh, biography of one of my great, uh, political figures, heroes, um, Thomas Paine, uh, and, uh, there's, uh, a few pages that I thought were quite interesting, uh, Paine, uh, Paine's actions, you know, as, after he'd written Common Sense and the Revolutionary War with Britain had broken out, um, uh, the American colonies had declared their independence and were now fighting for it. Uh, and so it's the beginning of the war, or, well, near the beginning of the war-ish, and this uh, takes place, uh, this uh, section of the book uh, recounts his involvement in some of the early stages of the war, including uh, the uh, pamphlet uh, that he wrote to inspire the troops uh, in a time of great uh, despair when all seemed uh, very, un when victory seemed very, very unlikely. Uh, and I feel like this is slightly appropriate uh, because uh, mentioned in this is um, uh, Peyton visiting Fort Lee in New York uh, on the east uh, side, uh, is that, I think it's on the west side of the Hudson. And uh, from there he viewed uh, in great alarm the the uh the fall of fort washington on the opposite bank uh it was a very dark moment in the war and uh as i said that was in new york and i hope to visit fort lee historic park uh when i uh journey to to the city it's a bit uh i think it's more on the new jersey side but uh, I should be able to visit there. So this does have a little New York uh, uh, relevance, so it seems uh, appropriate to, to use this as a reading today. Right, stop rambling, Daniel, and get on with it. So here we go. Thrilled by the Declaration of Independence, but sobered by the fact that the British were already resisting the decision of Congress with troops, Payne volunteered for military service with a Pennsylvania flying camp. The Associators, as they were called, were a ragtag volunteer army of men who enlisted for a brief period to fly to a battle zone, then disbanded when the battle concluded or their mutually agreed term of duty expired. 
In Philadelphia, Payne approached General Daniel Roberto, the commander of the flying camp and a wealthy merchant with outspoken Republican views. Roberto accepted Payne's offer to act as secretary to the general, and on July 9th, the day after the Declaration of Independence was proclaimed to a large public meeting in the city, Payne marched with his camp of fellow 18th century guerrillas to Amboy, now Perth Amboy, New Jersey, off the southern tip of Staten Island, where the British were preparing to invade New York and cut it off from Philadelphia. Payne spent the next two months there, watching transports and warships flying the Union Jack sail into Raritan Bay. I think I'm pronouncing that right? Correctly? Yeah where they dropped anchor and offloaded troops on Staten Island. With the daily accumulation of British military and naval might, Raritan Bay was so filled with masts that it began to resemble a forest. The sight was awesome. Some of the poorly disciplined, ill-equipped Pennsylvania troops became frightened and deserted, lowering the morale of those remaining. Payne tried to raise their spirits and stop the slow trickle of deserters by passing around copies of Common Sense. He also repeated Roberto's appeal to the men to fight, for your honour's sake, to repel the six-penny soldiers of the British Army. Toward the end of September, when the camp's term of enlistment expired, I should say, 1776, um, the volunteers packed up and returned home to Philadelphia without having seen action. Payne headed in the opposite direction. After accepting $48 for expenses, Roberto had offered Payne more, he travelled from Amboy up to Fort Lee, an American base camp on the west side of the Hudson River, across from the northern tip of Manhattan. There he was taken on as the aide-de-camp to General Nathaniel Green, a competent officer distinguished by his portly figure and a stiff knee that forced him to walk with a pronounced limp. Green commanded the troops at Fort Lee and Fort Washington, just opposite, on the east side of the Hudson. His assignment was a vital part of the Americans' plan to prevent the British from occupying the Hudson Valley and thereby severing New England from the other states. For the next two months, operating from Fort Lee headquarters, Payne observed every move of the Americans and their red-coated enemies. Each day, he dined with Green and his senior officers. The opinions and information he gathered served him well as the field correspondent for the Philadelphia press. Sensing that truth would be the first casualty of the war, he reacted by producing eyewitness reports of several skirmishes, including a life-or-death clash between the troops of Lord Percy and the Pennsylvania militia just across the river on the plains of Harlem. Writing, with a wooden pen on a drumhead, Payne's published account of the battle was eagerly read in Philadelphia. In no small measure because, according to one of the American soldiers present and fighting, it gave a handsome puff to the American troops, patriotically listing the full name of practically each Pennsylvanian caught up in the fray. The style of his eyewitness reporting was new to the American press. The war report filed on October 28th from White Plains was typically crisp, detailed and designed to create a sense of immediacy. Yesterday, the enemy attacked our lines at Harlem and Mount Washington at the same time with two ships. They were repulsed in both places. We have the report of Jen Howes being wounded, having his leg broke, 
several different ways. This morning, 45 Tories and some regular prisoners passed through here on their way to Fishkill. Colonel Smallwood of Maryland is in this moment come wounded to the house where I am. He is wounded in the arm and hip, but rode here on horseback and can walk tolerably well. Pain excelled at raising the spirits of citizens, but the facts were bitter. George Washington's army was slowly being worn down by the British after a series of costly engagements in the area stretching from White Plains to Long Island. Although opinions differed as to whether the Americans' military efforts were failing because of misguided dictates from Congress, the military might of the British, Washington's faulty tactics or a combination of all these things, the army was on its knees within three months of entering the war. Then, on November 6, 1776, the British under General Charles Cornwallis surrounded Fort Washington, capturing the whole garrison of 2,000 men and all their equipment. From a bluff on the west bank of the Hudson River, Payne stood with Green's officers and troops and watched the depressing spectacle with tears in their eyes, powerless to provide support for their comrades. Within hours, Washington ordered the immediate evacuation of Fort Lee. Green disobeyed, insisting that his men could repel any attack. He was soon forced to back down. Four days later, a 6,000-strong contingent of British troops and Hessian mercenaries launched a surprise move against the fort, scattering Green's men. A British officer reported that the, that the rebels fled like scared rabbits at dawn, leaving behind not only their breakfasts on the fire but several dozen valuable heavy cannon, many tents and some poor pork, a few greasy proclamations and some of that scoundrel common sense man's letters, which we can read at our leisure now that we have got one of the impregnable readouts of Mr Washington to quarter in. Payne retreated with Green's army to Hackensack. Hungry and exhausted, the bedraggled troops paused for 36 hours before a combination of foul weather, poor shelter and a fast-approaching enemy forced them to march a loop to Brunswick via Aquaconac and Newark. In Brunswick, they were greeted by British cannon. With fireballs rocketing past his ears, Payne sat calmly with his pen and recalled his days as a privateer. He contrasted his physical reactions to war, past and present, and described how fighting becomes second nature to those who survive more than one battle. I knew the time when I thought the whistling of a cannonball would have frightened me almost to death, but I have since tried it and find that I can stand it with little discomposure. A rather more sober report on Payne's footslogging, provided by a patriot soldier accompanying him, suggested that he was battle-shy and better suited to political writing than military fighting. Payne may be a good philosopher, the soldier wrote, but he is not a soldier. He always kept out of danger. As Green's army backtracked through New Jersey in confusion, Payne tacitly acknowledged the truth of the remark by writing a report for the Pennsylvania Journal and the Weekly Advertiser. It was the closest thing to political propaganda that he ever wrote. It substituted cheerfulness for gloom, hope for despair, firmness for irresolution. There was no mention of sick troops, deserters or the depressing magnitude of the bungling rout at Fort Lee. Payne instead chose to emphasise the shameful treatment 
of American civilians by the enemy, the unwillingness of General William Howe's troops to engage his opponents, and the heavy outnumbering of the Americans by the British. He rejected public allegations that the army had acted in a pusillanimous and disgraceful way. Did they know that our army was at one time less than a thousand effective men, and never more than four thousand, that the number of the enemy was at least eight thousand, he whistled. They would never have censured it at all. They would have called it prudent. Posterity will call it glorious. Payne's Pennsylvania Journal report was superb rhetoric, for although it managed to convey the acute perils of the moment, it did so with the maximum calmness of a political writer who wanted above all to avoid arousing panic among his already fear-ridden readers. Among Payne's genuinely novel insights was his grasp of the anti-democratic effects of fear. He understood that fear is a central ingredient of despotic regimes, in which fear of power always corrupts those who are subject to it, and fear of losing power always corrupts those who are exercising it. He also understood the converse of this rule. Shaking off fear, the capacity of citizens to join with others in dignity and solidarity to resist its enervating miasma, is a basic condition of constructing a democratic republican order. Payne grasped that fearlessness is not a naturally occurring substance. From his perspective, it is best thought of as a special form of courage, as the will to act gracefully under pressure that develops wherever victims of political lies and bullying make a personal effort to throw off the habit of letting fear dictate their actions as citizens. Payne was convinced that political writing could nurture this effort, as he tried to demonstrate in his next publication, The American Crisis. The essay was to be among his most famous and arguably among the greatest political essays in the modern English language. It was an ode to fearlessness in circumstances that alarmed a growing number of Americans. On December 1st, 1776, the term of enlistment for volunteers from New Jersey and Maryland expired, and George Washington, worried by thinning ranks and plummeting morale, made the decision not to make a stand against the British. As the American troops were forced back from Brunswick to Trenton on the Delaware River, their retreat began to resemble a rout. On December 8th, the Americans crossed to the west bank of the Delaware, taking with them all the ferries and boats on the river in the hope that this would halt the British on the east side of the river. The British massed menacingly on the east bank of the Delaware in pain, concerned that they might now be planning to attack might be, uh, pardon me, the, um, pardon me, uh, concerned that they might now be planning an attack on Philadelphia, left the army at Trenton on the advice of several principal officers in order to get out some publications as the printing presses were then at a stand in the country in a state of despair. He walked alone from Trenton to Philadelphia, a distance of 35 miles, sleeping rough, eating irregularly, constantly looking over his shoulder, anxious that a British soldier or informant would arrest him. More bad news greeted him in the capital. He arrived to find that refugees were streaming out of the city and that Congress had fled to the safety of Baltimore. Tory supporters were preparing a hero's welcome for General Howe, and many of the remaining inhabitants of Philadelphia were disillusioned by the poor performance of the American troops. Payne reacted angrily. 
In conversations, he continued to describe public criticisms of the American troops as pusillanimous and disgraceful. He skipped over the tactical blunders of the Americans and insisted that future generations would honour the glorious retreat of the American troops to Trenton. He even boasted that the names of Washington and Fabius will run parallel to eternity. And, coming to the heart of the matter, he noted the deplorable and melancholy condition the people were in. Afraid to speak and almost to think, the public presses stopped, and nothing in circulation but fears and falsehoods. With morale so low in Philadelphia, and support for the War of Independence already low and wavering, it was now just possible that the British could sack the capital city. That would endanger the revolution, since the fall of Philadelphia would render vulnerable the whole of Pennsylvania, the keystone in the arch of the American states. The deteriorating situation convinced Payne of the need for a radical renewal of the spirit of independence. He settled at his desk, gathered his notes, made during the past few months at the battlefront, and in what he called a passion of patriotism, drafted the first in a series of 13 essays, one for each state, called The American Crisis. Payne wrote, In a rage, whenever affairs were at their lowest ebb and things in the most gloomy state. His quill spat venom at King George III, describing him as a sottish, stupid, stubborn, worthless, brutish man who resembled a common murderer, a highwayman or a housebreaker. He lunged as well at the King's American Tory sympathisers, berating them all as cowards driven by servile, slavish, self-interested fear. The American crisis insisted that the safe retreat on the battlefield is the most difficult art to perfect, and it praised the Americans' conduct of an orderly retreat for near a hundred miles from Fort Lee. Penn also warned of a probable British attack led by General Howe on Philadelphia, but tried hard to allay his readers' fears by boasting about the strength of the regrouping American troops. Once more we are again collected and collecting. Our new army at both ends of the continent is recruiting fast, and we shall be able to open the next campaign with 60,000 men, well-armed and clothed. This is our situation, and who will may know it. The tract reiterated Payne's view that violence must always be strictly controlled and that the Americans' war effort must not degenerate into callous narcissism. But in this crisis, he argued, pacifism was the pawn of paternalism. The offensive war of the British was unjustified murder, whereas the Americans' defensive war against British tyranny was necessarily legitimate. If a thief breaks into my house, burns and destroys my property, and kills or threatens to kill me, or those that are in it, and to bind me in all cases whatsoever. Payne here quoted the Declaratory Act of Parliament, February 24th, 1766. To his absolute will, am I to suffer it? He went on to insist that America will never be happy till she gets clear of foreign dominion. He warned that when victory came to the Americans, priority would be given to the peaceful expropriation of the property of loyalists, conducted in the spirit not of revenge, but of the soft resentment of a suffering people. In deeply patriotic language topped with references to providence and traces of xenophobia, 
the American crisis pushed a fateful choice into the face of its American readers. Either Americans would struggle for a glorious victory against the British through perseverance and fortitude, or they would sink into cowardice and submission and suffer a calamitous fate. A ravaged country, a depopulated city, habitations without safety and slavery without hope, our homes turned into barracks and body houses for Hessians, and a future race to provide for whose fathers we shall doubt of. Payne had begun making notes for the American crisis during the long retreat from Fort Lee to Trenton. He had been exhausted and alarmed by the realisation that the American forces were heavily outnumbered, outgunned and in utter disarray. Tramping through mud by day, listening each evening to the consultations of General Green and his officers, Payne scribbled at night by the campfires. The problem of fear and how to reassure an already anxious citizenry was constantly on his mind. I thank God that I fear not, he wrote. I see no real cause for fear. I know our situation well and can see the way out of it. By perseverance and fortitude we have the prospect of a glorious issue. By cowardice and submission the choice of a variety of evils. Upon returning to Philadelphia, he hurriedly drew together the manuscript, then offered it to the editor of the Pennsylvania Journal, who published it a week before Christmas 1776. Several days later, it appeared as an eight-page pamphlet with a print run of 18,000 copies. Payne made it clear to the Philadelphia publishers, the German-Americans Melchior Steiner and Carl Seist, that he had offered it to them gratis on the condition that they cover their costs and keep its price to a few pence. He emphasised that the overriding aim was to circulate its message among civilians at home and troops at the battlefront. The college writings in this period, Payne's prose was crafted to be read out loud to people unfamiliar with the art of reading books or pamphlets. I dwell not upon the vapours of imagination, he wrote. I bring reason to your eyes and, in language as plain as ABC, Hold up truth to your eyes. Oh, pardon me. I bring reason to your ears, and in language as plain as ABC, hold up truth to your eyes. The text was pirated by printers up and down the Atlantic coast. How many thousands of copies were printed and reprinted and snapped up by civilians is unknown, but there is evidence that the pamphlet circulated among the underdressed and dispirited American troops preparing for battle against the superior forces of the British and Hessian army at Trenton. Payne sensed that the battle would be a watershed. A British victory might well cause the American struggle to collapse. The Americans, for their part, badly needed a victory to divert the British threat to Philadelphia and inject new life into their flagging fight for independence. Washington decided to meet the challenge by assembling volunteers from Philadelphia a regiment of German immigrant units from Charles Lee's command, and a further 500 men subcommanded by Horatio Gates, about 6,000 troops in all. In the late afternoon light of Christmas Day 1776, officers assembled the American troops into small squads and read to them the text of the American crisis. On the eve of battle, its opening sentences must have sounded strangely primeval to the ears of men thinking about death and injury. The words soon became famous, and will always remain so, until the cause of citizens' freedom is extinguished. 
These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. After nightfall, through a storm of hail and sleet, Washington's men were ferried in flat-bottomed boats across the Delaware. They inched toward Trenton, some of them leaving trails of blood in the snow from their bandaged or bare feet, their officers prodding them during halts to keep them from falling into an icy sleep from which they would never awake. By daybreak, the troops had reached the outskirts of Trenton. That day, December 26, had been chosen because... One of, Washington aides, one of Washington's aides remarked, the Hessian mercenaries occupying the town were known to make a great deal of Christmas in Germany and would probably be suffering from a surfeit of raucous dancing schnapps and beer. The American gamble paid handsome dividends. Colonel Johann Gottlieb Brahl, the conceited German commander at Trenton, was caught in his nightshirt and later mortally wounded in the heavy street fighting that erupted. By nightfall, the Hessians had been routed. A thousand men were taken prisoner, and, to the Americans' delight, nearly all the enemy stores, including fine German swords and forty hogsheads of rum, were captured. Trenton was won. The American crisis had proved to be a literary cannon on the battlefield of independence. The grip of the British Empire on America was loosened for a while. Now, I was going to stop there, but uh, there's a couple more pages which I think contain a couple of uh, very interesting points, so I'm going to keep going, but uh, it shouldn't take too long. It's only a couple of pages. Well, not even two pages. Well, about two pages. After the victory at Trenton, Payne fixed his energies on dampening false hopes of an early American victory while simultaneously attempting to lighten the hearts of the American revolutionaries by heaping criticism on the British. It was typical of the sober optimism of his politics during this period of war. In the second instalment of the American Crisis, published by Steiner and Ceased on January 13, 1777, he warned that a chain of unborn crises lay ahead and that American citizens must try to be patient and resilient. Yet the warning was mixed with hope, for Payne also argued that the British strategy of containing the American colonies was doomed to failure. The essay was written in the form of an open letter to a British office official, a tactic designed both to heighten the sense of distance between the imperial governors and their subjects, and to legitimate public criticism of those same governors by subjects who in fact considered themselves American citizens. The letter was addressed to Lord Richard Howe, the Vice Admiral of the British Fleet and brother of William Howe, the Commander-in-Chief of the British Forces. Richard Howe had been sent to America the previous July to negotiate with Congress, but his overtures had been refused. A letter that he had sent to Mr Washington requesting a meeting was snubbed on the grounds that it had not used a general and Howe eventually met only with Washington's unyielding aides, who ensured that the meeting was fruitless. P. 
Payne gave Howe an equally frosty reception. Payne prefaced the letter with a quote from the British poet Charles Churchill, 1731-64. What's in the name of Lord that I should fear to bring my grievance to the public ear? He then taunted Howe with the thought that the British Empire would suffer its first humiliation in America. Payne admitted that Britain had the upper hand in terms of weaponry, the ultimate language in which kings like George III speak, and that its global influence was awesome. Blessed with all the commerce she could wish for, and furnished by a vast extension of dominion, with the means of civilising both the Eastern and Western world, she has made no other use of both than proudly to idolise her own thunder and rip up the bowels of whole countries for what she could get. Britain's global power, wrote Payne, had made war a sport. His language was militantly anti-imperialist. The blood of India is not yet repaid, nor the wretchedness of Africa yet requited. Of late she has enlarged her list of national cruelties by her butcherly destruction of the Caribs of St Vincent's. The same pattern of wanton brutality was daily being repeated in America, as British pillaging after Trenton demonstrated. Your avowed purpose here, snapped Payne, is to kill, conquer, plunder, pardon and enslave, and the ravages of your army through the Jerseys have been marked with as much barbarism as if you had openly professed yourself the Prince of Ruffians. Payne's invective was tough. Surely there must be something strangely degenerating in the love of monarchy that can so completely wear a man down to an ingrate and make him proud to lick the dust that kings have trod upon. And it was designed to reiterate that independence was America's natural right. He challenged Howe to grasp the point that Americans were no longer in love with monarchy. Payne emphasised that because the hearts of American revolutionaries underlay their struggle for independence and republican government, the British could never win them over, let alone control or pacify them. The most powerful cannon and longest and sharpest bayonets could no longer reach the souls of Americans. In the unlikely event the British conquered the Americans militarily, the victory would be utterly fictional. It would resemble robbing an orchard in the night before the fruit be ripe and running away in the morning. In common sense, Payne had warned that the struggle for independence was fraught with unforeseen consequences including possibly the undermining of liberty itself by populist dictatorship. Payne resumed this theme in the American crisis too, by telling a story of a recent meeting with a prominent Philadelphia loyalist. Payne had told him that he had reached the conclusion that God Almighty was visibly on our side. The loyalist had reacted cynically. We care nothing for that, you may have him, and welcome if we have but enough of the devil on our side, we shall do. Payne told the anecdote to warn Americans against falling into the trap of seeking revenge against their opponents. Although he repeated his earlier threat that British colonial officials would be forced into exile and their property redistributed when the war ended, Americans owed them compassion. The British and their supporters should be treated with civility. A republic that nurtured its citizens' freedom, like a hive of bees moving freely in all directions, required the binding propolis of civility. I am not for declaring war with every man that appears not so warm as myself, wrote Payne, calling for an end to the Americans' public humiliation of the British and their sympathizers. 
The traditional political language of friends and enemies had no place in the radical republicanism of the revolutionaries. It is time to have done with tarring, feathering, carting and taking securities for their future good behaviour, Payne wrote. Every sensible man must feel a conscious shame at seeing a poor fellow hawked for a show about the streets. And there we go. I am definitely done now. As I said, just a few little things that I find interesting there, in particular his linkage of uh, the American struggle uh, as an anti-imperialist, uh, anti-imperialist struggle, um, linking it to in the ravages visited by the British upon other uh, uh, colonies, um, which is a very radical understanding of the American Revolution. Um, and secondly, his uh, call for uh, you know playing nice with loyalists and the British, you know, not unleashing uh, some sort of revolutionary terror upon them. Uh, and just to finish off, I'll note. I mean, as you will have heard, Payne often uses the language of of being enslaved. The, Amer- the British want to enslave the Americans. Uh, they want to, you know. Uh, uh, tar- turn us into slaves um, of course the, that brings up the great question of America which is uh, the founding being in the name of liberty yet with many of its founders and much of its society uh, tainted by the stain of slavery uh, the slavery in this case of Africans um, Payne was well aware of that contradiction, that hypocrisy and was a very public and vocal opponent of slavery. Um, one of the first things he wrote when he first arrived in America was an article uh, fiercely condemning slavery, and uh, which helped to inspire the setting up of, uh, I think, the first uh, abolitionist uh, group, if not in the world, then certainly in America. Uh, and later, during the war, as clerk of the Pennsylvania State Assembly, he uh, possibly had a hand in writing the preamble to the uh, to the to the law that was passed uh, banning slavery in Philadelphia, which, as Keane notes in this book, was in fact the world's first um, abolition law. Uh, so. Yes, so he he was certainly involved, knew about that contradiction, and tried to do his best to to uh, resolve it in favour of liberty. Um, and it's also uh, not to not to take away from the sheer hypocrisy and horror of 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 American slavery, but um, but it is a nice little um, antidote to the over overly. Uh, cynical view that uh, you know it was completely hypocritical that America was just uh, you know as Dr Johnson said the drivers of Negroes are the ones yelping loudest for liberty um, yes though that contradiction and hypocrisy certainly existed but there was also a very radical current in the opposite direction uh, so much so that uh, the USA became the first in the world place in the world to have a uh, an actual law of abolition of slavery, uh, which counts for something. Uh, you know, uh, it's hard to hard to be 
uh, it's completely condemning when you when you know that 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 was the world's first preceding all British efforts to outlaw uh, the slave trade and slavery. Um, yes. Anyway. Uh, so there we go. A few interesting things. As I said, I shall be away next week in uh, New York. Uh, hopefully be able to visit Fort Lee and perhaps stand where Payne stood watching the fall of Fort Washington on the opposite side of the river. Um, And I shall see you in two weeks then. Thank you again. And if you've just recently subscribed, then thank you very much. I hope you enjoy what I uh, present to you. Uh, For now, have a lovely day and a lovely two weeks. Bye-bye.